0: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're going to talk about some metabolic issues. November is Diabetes Awareness Month, and first up we're going to hear about a one-year update on the Ikahi Ornish program with Dr. Kevin Lum. And after that, we're going to be talking with Dr. Mark Breidenstein, endocrinology specialist at Kaiser Permanente. We're going to demystify the disease known as diabetes because, nope, it's not just about sugar anymore. So first up, we're going to talk with Dr. Kevin Lum. Now, you're here representing the Akahi Ornish Reversal Program one-year anniversary. And this is based on the Dean Ornish Uh, heart disease reversal diet that is fairly well known. And you were on in February. You were telling us a little bit about the program. And now it's time for an update. You guys have had about 300 alumni, about another people actively in the program. Let's review a little bit the four components of the Ornish program and talk about how successful it's been so far. A lot of people have heard about it and might be a little scared to know if they have to do all these really strict changes in their life. But there's four key components to this program. Dr. Lum, tell me a little bit more about it.
1: Uh, so it's the four elements that we practice are nutrition, which is a plant-based nutrition, low in fat. So less than 10% of your calories are from fat. We have exercise. We ask the people to do 180 minutes of exercise a week. Uh, the, second, the third component is stress management, which is gentle yoga and stretching. Uh, and the fourth component is we call it uh, love and support, which is a group support type of a uh, forum that we present.
0: Now, you actually, in order to be involved in the Ornish program, had to go through it yourself.
1: Yes. Yeah, so all of us who present the program have to go through a three-day experien- experiential. Uh, and for the most part, all of us practice what we preach, and we all kind of walk in our patients' uh, shoes. So we live the diet. We live the, as best as our ability, the exercise, the stress management, and the group support.
0: And you got your dad on it. Yes. So and you've been following this, you know, the key is that when people first commit to the program... They've got to follow it by, you know, the letter of the law.
1: So we ask that when the people go through the program, we ask them to be as close as they can, 100% adherent. So sticking to the diet as best as possible, 100%, doing the stress management, uh, doing the exercise, and, again, participating in the group support. Um, As they leave the program, it's up to them what they want to do, but we're hoping by that time, after the nine weeks, they've enacted that kind of change in their lifestyle where it's, it's part of their lifestyle now that they can do it day in and day out.
0: And because I know that... You know when you had your recent alumni gathering that was maybe earlier this month that about seventy five percent of participants were doing some element of the of the diet or the exercise or the stress management or the uh, the social support they were doing some element of it even a year later
1: yeah so the, some of the alumni we get, we talked to we are doing some we 're catching up with the group that first graduates about a year out from now, and as we 're talking to them getting the data about, like I said like she said seventy five percent of the people are hearing to some part of the um, uh, th- to the uh, the program itself, uh, and also the other people who have graduated most recently, also they're adhering to the diet. They're adhering to the uh, the practices that we've ta- we've taught them.
0: So let's talk a little bit about this plant-based diet. So a lot of folks might be afraid because they hear about that component. What are some of the foods that you can eat? Everybody always talks about what you can't eat. Let's talk about what you can eat. So give me an example of what your diet or the recommended diet might be for the individuals going through this. Like for breakfast, lunch, dinner, just a quick little make me hungry example.
1: So it's a plant-based diet. We, we ask people to use like whole foods as much as possible. So say, breakfast, yeah, tell so me your, what I need breakfast. Breakfast could be like a little bit of... Uh, Um, uh, non-fat Greek yogurt with a little bit of granola and some fresh fruit for Mm. your breakfast. Um, Sounds good yeah,' that's really you could have that um, just, fresh, just fresh fruit in general could be your breakfast moving into lunch, you could have like a, a veggie burger that's uh, low in fat that you look at the labels and it 's less than ten uh, percent of calories from fat you can have could a be salad burger.
0: could be a veggie burger, so it actually burger. could be something that is not meat but is some other type of substantive amount mm-hmm. like tofu is that okay
1: tofu's great beans are great beans lentils are great, so we do um, we have a lentil loaf that we present to people too it's like a, our take on meatloaf, but uses beans and lentils and you can have have A little uh, non fat kind of a mushroom gravy to go along with it, some mashed potatoes not made with, um, with butter or heavy cream, or it could be a cauliflower mash also, which is very tasty too. Uh, accompanied by nice, you know, vegetables that are sauteed and kind of like steamed in water versus using oils and such. Um, what about dinner? dinner you could have a nice we have we do a nice soba salad so you know we're trying to hit all the different kinds of uh, ethnicities with a soba salad with some nice wakame in it with some uh nice steamed vegetables with a nice kind of ginger soy dressing would be nice also um we also do a great you have pasta marinara with a, using whole wheat noodles or rice noodles as opposed to the regular pasta noodles and with a nice marinara sauce and you get your vegetables and a salad also Okay. And we also have desserts, too. So we actually do a tofu pudding, which is uh, to die for us. it's really, really good. Okay. Come into
0: your house, Kevin. You're <laughs> going to make me tofu pudding and, uh, and whatever that sopa salad thing sounded really good. So... Yeah. Uh, I'm just inviting myself to your house for dinner. That's what I'm doing. Come on over. But now that I'm really hungry, okay. So who should who should consider doing this particular dietary program? I went to an event recently. Dr. Dean Ornish was presenting this. He did some research on this way back in the 80s and early 90s, looking at whether or not you could focus on, instead of waiting until someone has a cardiac event, heart attack, bypass, stroke, et cetera, What else could they do? Could food be used as medicine? That was sort of the light bulb that went off for him is, what if we could actually change lifestyle? Could that make a difference? So who should be interested in this type of a program?
1: So those people who've had a cardiac event. So say you've had a heart attack, or you've had bypass surgery, uh, even valve replacement. People can are uh, welcome to the program also. But the bigger portion of people that we see are people who have risk factors for cardiac disease. So age being a risk factor: males over forty-five, women over fifty-five. Uh, if you have a first-degree relative who's had a, a heart attack, so your mother, father, brother, sister have had a cardiac uh, event also. Prior smokers also. But people who have high blood pressure, uh, people who have high cholesterol. Uh, People with elevated blood glucose also would qualify for the program, too.
0: So you have some data on the before they do the program and after they do the program kind of numbers. So tell me a little bit, you know, some, if people go by risk factors and they're going because they have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high sugar, what kind of reductions are we actually seeing in some of those elements?
1: So some of the reductions that we see from the pre-program to the post-program, uh, we see a reduction in total cholesterol of about 15%, a reduction of the LDL of about 16%, triglycerides can be reduced by 11.5%. Uh, your systolic blood pressure can be reduced by 6%. That's the top number. The top number, okay. excuse me. Bottom the, number, also the bottom a bottom number problem. 7%. Yeah. Um, the big one that we see is the hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of your, your how well you're doing with your sugar. Uh, we've had reductions of that for about ten percent, I believe it was. Um, I believe so. So.
0: So you could actually see somebody who goes from an A1C of like eight, you could actually see them come down to the sevens or sixes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's that's again, if you're diabetic, when you go into the program, you can see those benefits. Yeah. But even if you're not diabetic, following this sort of low glycemic index, this this healthier dietary program. Lower sugars anyway.
1: Yes. So we actually do have people who come to the program who are on diabetic medication, whether it be insulin or oral medications. As they go through the programs, we see the sugars decreasing where they have to have their medicines adjusted by their primary care doctor. So usually it's a reduction of their oral medication or even their insulin gets reduced while they're in the program. Right around the fourth or fifth week, we start seeing these sugars being dropped.
0: And do you see that they're able to sustain that over time?
1: Yeah, so a lot of people, we do follow-up. When they leave the program, they reduce their medication. We get follow-up from them. They'll be able to maintain that if they maintain themselves on the diet and the program. Their blood glucose does stay low enough where they can stay off those medications or come off the medication altogether.
0: Yeah, and I think we see some other things with more drastic approaches. Some people will go through, you know, gastric bypass surgery or something of that nature, and that that also often gets people off of medication and is associated with a lot of weight loss. Mm. Some people have concerns about how that affects their body and all the different changes. This sounds like it's a non-invasive way to achieve some of the same goals, reduction in these metabolic parameters, and yet also in such a way that, you know, you actually – You wind up on less medication, literally, because you don't need as much because your blood pressure goes down and your cholesterol and your sugar go down.
1: And one of the side effects we like to talk about the program, we don't tout it as a weight loss program, but one of the nice side effects is that people do lose weight. And it's about a 10% 10 to 15% decrease in their weight and also the BMI drops also. So all these risk factors lead back towards people who might be pre-diabetic or diabetic also.
0: So now if people are interested in this this program, can they find information online?
1: Yes, so we have a website at um, they that also reaches by telephone at 777-4001, and we have people who be more than happy to talk to them about the program, give them the ins and out, and to see whether they qualify or not.
0: And insurance may cover for it. Some of the insurance companies mm-hmm. are providing some coverage for this, and if not, some people have actually paid on their own because they found it so valuable.
1: Yeah, we've had a couple of people pay out of pocket, but we also are working with the insurance companies to make it a benefit for their participants also.
0: And I think Medicare started as one of the first groups that actually covered it.
1: Yeah, Medicare was our first one. Now, HMSA is very uh, generous in how they're helping out their participants go through the program.
0: Because the ultimate goal is that... If you reduce these risk factors, if you can actually prevent a cardiovascular event, you could potentially save thousands of dollars.
1: Oh, definitely. If you're preventing the person from having bypass surgery or even uh, angioplasty and such, you're way ahead of the ball game versus spending those tens of thousands of dollars. This is a very a kind of drop in the bucket as I look at it.
0: Sure, it's a very proactive way to sort of provide some element of being able to to help reduce these metabolic risk factors, reduce these the blood pressure, the cholesterol, the weight, the sugar, kind of all of those things all together. It really is a unique way to go about it. Now, you've been through, you said, a three-day intensive of the program. Yes. And then did you go through one of the cohorts with the people who started?
1: Uh, no. We, the, everybody who it, like I said, we kind of live it day-to-day, so we're kind of walking with them as they go through the program. So we have our our work group does our own group support. Uh, we do have stress management on occasion that we can drop into and we can So you do have all those same elements yeah, as part do. of your workplace. Yes, we do.
0: Now you mentioned stress management is yoga and stretching. Mm-hmm. What if you need more than yoga and stretching to reduce your stress?
1: So we actually do meditation. We do deep breathing. Uh, and we do uh, guided meditation. So there's all the other forms besides the stretching and the yoga that are uh, people who present the, that particular element will help people, will guide them through learning these different methods. And, then, you know, after that, people can decide what they want to do. But we've armed them with a different a variety of tools that they can, they can look at and use.
0: Well, and I'll be honest, I really do think that underlying a lot of these metabolic issues is stress. Oh, yeah. Stress either because, you know, you've amped up your cortisol levels in your body and that results in higher blood pressure, higher cholesterol, higher sugar. Or even just the idea that you're so stressed because you don't have time, that you don't eat right, that you don't make good food choices because you wait until last minute and then you just eat whatever is you know, drive through or easy-to-get or something along those lines. So it seems to me like one of the huge components that's different than the other programs is really looking at that stress piece and then also providing that social support, that, that additional element of it. Otherwise, the exercise and the diet, I mean, the exercise sounds very reasonable, what you're asking, and the dietary programs are strict. On the other hand, it's, it's changing a lifestyle. But I think those other two, two components, I think that's where the magic lies.
1: I, I agree with you. But a lot of people, they take away is actually the group support because a very big element. A lot of people, we teach them how to listen empathetically and how to communicate with one another. And I think a lot of people, after they graduate, they take these lessons and they go home. And so we get feedback. I can communicate with my daughter, my family better. I can, I can speak to my People at work a lot better. They can relate to a lot better too. So this goes beyond that little group support. They take the lessons, and I think their whole life becomes better. We also know that we have we do a depression score before and after. We see the depression scores get less. So now they're, they're improvement of the depression scores. So people do take a lot from the uh, the love and support, um, the meditation. Also, people you know a lot of people they don't know how to meditate. They don't know how to relax. It's surprising how many people the first day they're there, they don't know how to relax. They're stiff and they're. They look out of sorts, but as they go through the program, they enjoy it more. And they really find that an opportunity, it's an hour to themselves. It's an hour they can dedicate to kind of clear their mind, find, you know, find the get in touch with their body, figure out what's going on and how to really relax. And a lot of people find that it's probably the best hour of their day.
0: And that's something you do in the group setting, but you also do it on your own as well.
1: Yeah, as much as I can. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, and you're like, as much as I can, okay. (laughs) I was just thinking in general, but you're throwing it out there, yeah, I try my best. And that's another thing is I think really, when we look at this holistic aspect of, you know, trying to work on health promotion instead of disease prevention, is really a different shift for a lot of folks wanting to really focus on how to stay healthy in general. Now, do those groups get together later? Do they, do they hang out together? Do they meet again?
1: So what we do, we ask them to form alumni groups, uh, whether it be their cohort that they go through or even through the program we have um, quarterly alumni events. And we just had our big one-year alumni event which we brought as many people back together. But we ask the groups to continue as alumni. They can meet, uh, some groups meet once a week to continue walking and having a meal together. Uh, Some will meet once a month just to kind of get together, touch bases, and support one another. They can do a little group support together because they've they've learned to really bond over that nine weeks. So most of the groups do stay together, um, but it's not something that we kind of monitor. We allow them to kind of form and create and continue on on their own.
0: Well, and that's the alumni group that you just had. You know, everybody gets together again. I think often it's because we will be more than happy to... Disappoint ourselves and not go walking at the end of the day But if we've committed to go with a friend or a group, we're more likely to get there. Oh, yes All right, that's the way that's the way it goes Kevin. I hear you I'll see you out there after we go after I invite myself to your house for dinner Then we can go for a walk sounds like a great plan Well, I want to thank you for for giving us some of that data And maybe I know you're doing some of the analysis right now of after people have been in the program for a year Hey, let's find out how are they doing with their cholesterol, their blood pressure, their sugar. Let's look at some of the long-term data. Because when you look at some of the studies that were done to prove that this works, actually those who continue to follow along the program really do have Good long-term data that show that they're able to avoid a lot of the cardiovascular procedure and interventions if they stick to it.
1: Yeah, so if they can maintain and sustain this, this kind of lifestyle change, uh, the the data from Dr. Ornish's original study, those people were able to, like you said, were able to hold off either bypass or didn't have those uh, cardiac disease later on in their lives.
0: Good, because nobody's volunteering for that one. No. All right. Well, thank you very much. That's Dr. Kevin Lum from Ikahi Ornish dietary program, and more information will be posted on our Facebook page, so you can link to it. Now, November is Diabetes Awareness Month, and what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about diabetes as the next portion of our show, because it's not just about sugar anymore. There are so many different elements and components when we think about diabetes, because it has effects on the kidney, on the eyes, on the on the heart, on the liver, on pretty much every organ of your body. Now, that's a condition that, although it's diagnosed by looking at sugars, has so many multiple effects. When we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk about what is diabetes, what does it affect, and what are the new ways that we can find to help treat this condition. In the last five or so years, there have been some great innovations with medication, but also some innovations with things like Dr. Lum talked about, the Ornish Diet, different dietary programs that can really help folks in a comprehensive way address the nutritional aspects and those other aspects of their care that might be leading to higher sugars. When we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Mark Bridenstine, endocrinology expert at Kaiser Permanente. But as always, our show is your show. So if you have diabetes or if you've learned something unique about how you can take care of yourself, we'd love to hear from you. Something you say might just help somebody else who's listening. You can give us a holler at 941-3689. Toll free from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. To work for Donald Trump or not to? That is the question that some GOP strategists are asking themselves.
2: If you're not in the game, then you're not thought about. So he's the only game in
0: town. I'm Molly Wood. Decisions, decisions. Next time on Marketplace from APM.
2: This evening at 6, right after The Body Show.
0: My wife, Judy, who sings with several choirs, and I were heading into town in the car, listening to the radio, and suddenly Beethoven's Ode to Joy came on, and Judy started singing along. It was a magical moment because Beethoven's Ode to Joy was on the radio, and only with HPR would that ever happen. My name is Harlan Hughes, and my wife is Judy Anderson.
3: We live in Kula on the slopes of Haleakala, and we are very proud to be sustaining members of Hawaii Public
2: Radio. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We just heard from Dr. Kevin Lum. He is head of the Akahi Ornish program, and uh, that's the cardiovascular reversal diet that Dr. Dean Ornish figured out maybe about 20 or 30 years ago, has some great long-term studies on. But part of what they're trying to do with that diet is also help people who have diabetes, because diabetes is a condition that is not just focused on sugar. So to help us learn more about this condition, who's at risk, who could get it, how do we diagnose it, and what else is it about if it isn't just sugar Dr. Mark Breidenstein is here in the studio. He's an endocrinology expert at Kaiser Permanente and he's going to talk some more about what it means to have diabetes now if you do have this condition or if you figured out a way when you were diagnosed to try and help reduce those levels so that maybe maybe you don't have it anymore you can definitely give us a holler if we can all learn from one another's experience 941-3689 here on Oahu and on our neighbor Islands 3689 Doctor Mark, welcome to the Body Show.
4: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Now everybody thinks diabetes is just about sugars, and in fact, there's a huge element of it that is about sugars. But tell me, what diabetes really is?
4: Well, so diabetes um, it's a it's a dis, you know disorder of um, how the body handles and metabolizes sugar uh, and. Because you know every tissue in your body and uh, all the cells are uh, essentially dependent on sugar or highly dependent on it, uh, it can have wide, you know, widespread effects um, for overall health and and function.
0: So it's based on the fact that somehow your metabolism and your metabolic system whether it be what you're eating or the combination of your pancreas ability to produce insulin to manage that food that you're eating or if your pancreas can produce insulin it's it's this issue with sugar yeah there's... so the sugar part is true and certain levels of sugar go super high and that can be a problem so what would be some of these levels what would be a normal sugar and what's a what's a sugar I should be worried about
4: so um <clears throat> so sugars are they're they're gonna vary and there's much more variation when you have diabetes. So in, in any time we see uh any time a random blood sugar over two hundred, um, that's usually sufficient to, to make the diagnosis of diabetes. Although, you know, there's there's always certain circumstances or scenarios that um might uh cause a blood sugar to go high, whether um, you know, metabolic stress or, or illness, um uh, so, so sometimes, uh, you know, we, we don't usually rely on just one single reading or test. Uh, we like to confirm it. And, uh, and there's different ways to do that. So there's the A1C uh, blood test uh, that gives kind of more of an average of what the blood sugars have been over the preceding two to three months. Um, but a, sing- yeah, a single blood sugar over 200 is, is concerning. There's intermediates, though, in between there that depending on if it's a fasting blood sugar um, we you know we usually diagnose diabetes above one twenty six in that scenario, um, and then there's you know other challenges when we challenge the body to uh, with a sugar load uh, and see how how it deals with it. Uh, there's there's cutoffs for that as well. Um,
0: so basically, either you have a non fasting sugar that is high, mm-hmm. a fasting sh- above two, in the two hundred range, mm-hmm. a fasting sugar that's above about one twenty six. Mm-hmm. A glucose challenge, which they often do when women are pregnant or sure. under certain circumstances, give a lot of sugar, measure the body's blood sugar, and see what happens to it, mm-hmm. or that magic A1C number. And that's a number that's pretty common to most of the people who have this diagnosis. What exactly is the A1C? It's a percent of something. What's it a percent of?
4: So, you know, if you break down the word hemoglobin A1C, so hemoglobin is a component of red blood cells. Um, and it's it's listed as a percentage so I, you know i i tell folks usually it's a you think of it as the percentage of your red blood cells that are sugar coated so it's glycolated. it's just a term for sugar. sugars on it yeah exactly okay. uh and that happens uh that happens when sugars are higher it happens in you know people that don't have diabetes have an a1c as well and that number's usually more like 5% okay so uh, diabetes we diagnose at a at a level of five of six point five percent or higher. And so, you know, I I like to point that out to folks because um it's a small small difference. You know, it's a small percentage change, but it, it does represent metabolically as something that's quite different for that individual.
0: When we get to that point where the A one C is higher than six point five percent, that would suggest that your average blood sugar in your body is about how high? Uh
4: that's about one hundred and fifty.
0: Um, so that includes the I just ate spikes mm-hmm. and the I haven't, eat, yeah. I haven't eaten times when it's lower. So that is really what they call your estimated average glucose, I, your EAG, as they might call it. Okay. And that number actually helps people to realize that, you know, some people say, well, yeah, but last week was Thanksgiving and I ate too much. And so that's why my A1C was high. But that really can't be the case because yeah. it takes a lot more than one meal to make that number right. go up.
4: Yeah, Um yeah, so it's a, it's technically it you know to, because the lifespan of a red blood cell is 3 months um it's it's more of a an, eva- an average of the last 3 months um it's a little bit more heavily weighted on the last month so if you had something going on in the last month um it it will skew that a1c slightly higher than uh than the prior two you know um than the o- the overall average of that 3 months but
0: So like don't check it in January. Yeah, yeah. Because of Christmas and New Year's, Thanksgiving. Yeah. I mean, do if you need to, right. if you have a serious problem with your sugars and you're on insulin or some serious reason. But, you know, if you're hoping for the best, uh, I, that might not be the best month to do it.
4: Yeah, pa- patients tend to tend to avoid coming sometimes and checking that. Or, you're not know, that time. busy yeah, in January. It's, it's, it's something we noticed, yeah.
0: Well, and truthfully, the whole idea of checking the number is to give people information. Sure, yeah. And the information helps to help them to be able to make adjustments in their diet or to make adjustments in their medication. Mm-hmm. So when you have high sugar, it's high in your body because of what?
4: So um, so it kind of it depends. And every, you know, there's there's different factors that play a role there. So, you know, classically people think about and hear about type 1 versus type 2 diabetes, um, there, there's there's other types and there's combinations of different types and that's kind of what what I try to figure out when I see somebody so but when but it's helpful to group um group you know to to think about it mechanistically because that that will uh impact how that person is you know treated how how we what therapies we end up choosing for them so in someone with type 1 or you know in the past is you know, we kind of referred to it as early onset or you know uh, onset at a at a young age these are folks that um, tend to have uh, a reduction in their insulin production, and it's usually autoimmune-mediated. So their immune system has decided to sort of attack specifically the cells in their pancreas that make insulin. Um, you typically, when, when these folks uh, receive insulin, though, they, they tend to respond to it pretty well, at least uh, over, over time. They, they tend not to require as high of doses to maintain control. And we contrast that usually with type 2 diabetes, which often in the early stages, uh, the, these individuals are still making insulin. Um, in some cases, they're making high amounts of insulin, but their body, uh, for a variety of reasons, is just not quite responding the same way. It's, it's becoming resistant to that insulin, so higher and higher doses are are needed um, to, to maintain the same effect and have, have control over the blood sugar.
0: So if we were to put it in real simple terms, I would let's talk mainly about the type 2, the traditional type 2 diabetes. Type 1 is sort of its own, its own deal. Sure. But if we were to look at it basically, your body has too much sugar, either because you ate it mm-hmm. or because your pancreas can't keep up with that, so mm-hmm. you don't have enough insulin sure. to compensate for what you ate, or your body is resistant to the insulin you do have. Correct. Okay. So when we have people who have type 1, their body doesn't make insulin because they have an autoimmune issue with their pancreas. Mm -hmm. So they have a very unfortunate situation. Their only option is insulin. Yep. They don't make any. You you can't make your pancreas make more of zero if you don't make any. Correct. Okay. So for our type 2, where most people with diabetes are, these are the uh, folks who previously we used to call it non-insulin-dependent diabetes. However, a lot of them use insulin. So Mm -hmm. that kind of confuses people. So for those folks... Either it's their diet they're eating too much of the sugar or their body can't handle what they're eating because they either can't make enough insulin or their body's resistant to it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the medications that we use, we can't really stop the you eat too much sugar. We kind of hope people are able to do that on their own. So there's not really a pill that says you can eat whatever you want and you won't absorb it. That's not going to happen. So most of the medications work to try and help the body either A, become less resistant mm-hmm. to the insulin your body makes mm-hmm. or B make more make insulin. More insulin right. And some of the medications can do a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of oddballs out there. You know, there's some new ways that we can treat diabetes by making you pee out your sugar. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a great plan until you have to pee all the time. But <sighs> it is it is a way that, you know, I guess it fits that that earlier criteria of, of not eating as much or eating it and not absorbing it. So Let's talk about the basics. A lot of people know about medication that's given for for diabetes. And the reason we try and lower the sugar is because that high sugar causes damage to other areas of the body. It causes damage to the lining of the arteries that go to everywhere in your body, sure. heart, brain, etc. It can cause damage to the nerve cells of your brain, the nerve cells of your eye, the nerve cells of your nerves, which is why we hear about people having these burning sensations, tingling of their hands and feet. When we talk about the medicines, Metformin is one of the ones that we use, then there's other medication classes and we can talk about them. Brand name, generic name doesn't matter when we talk about medicine. How once someone's once it's been established that they need medication, they can't do it on their own for whatever reason, their body isn't responding to the lifestyle changes they've made. How is it that you approach giving someone medication, and is everybody treated differently, or is there a general plan on how you should treat people step by step by step?
4: well yeah, so the, it's uh it's it's a little bit of both i mean um there's there's some general um guidelines that kind of indicate you know so metformin is generally considered first line for as an oral option for oh, just about everybody as long as there's not
0: if you can tolerate it you're getting metformin yeah, right right might be called glucophage you're getting right. it anyway uh, that's going to help you yeah,
4: right and there but there's a few there's a few exceptions there uh really really advanced kidney disease uh, you can't use it You can't use it decompensated heart failure can't may, use may it. not be a good idea but but for the most part and it's probably one of the better tolerated and, and um safe medications for diabetes after metformin, it's debatable, and it is that's the
0: personalized approach. Yeah, yeah, depends on the age, depends on the kidney function, depends on a variety of different other aspects of that person's
4: comorbid conditions, and and uh, and intolerance. And, and a lot of it is tolerance, and some some of it is um, um, is is the you know reality of whether or not that's going to help them enough to make a
0: meaningful impact so sure so some people have these a1c's that can be scary i think the highest i've ever seen and uh, and i'm sure you've seen higher is like 16.2 i remember specifically the person who had 16.2 and i went and i (laughs) called an endocrinologist i'm like what do i do and they're like calm down kozak This didn't happen overnight. (laughs) This has been uh, like several years in the making. You don't have to freak out. So I kind of calmed down. But, uh, you know, there's some really high A1Cs. So we know that some people are not going to respond enough to the milder medicines. They need stronger medicine. And we also know that people that are so close to being on target might not want the strongest medicine because it could, in fact, make them go too low. Correct. Yep. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We have Jesse on the line from Haiku. Jesse, welcome to the body show.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I just had a question regarding uh, what you guys were speaking of about diet and um, the effects of, um, you know, a high-fat diet, high-saturated fat intake, um, affecting the body's or the insulin's ability to clear the blood of the sugar and get the sugar to the cells. And um, if you guys had any research on that or um, could speak to that a little bit. And also, um, you know, like a whole foods, low fat diet, um, having very positive effects on the need for medications and even enabling people to get off of medications
0: well, Jesse, you've got two interesting elements. And, and the the second part of it, the whole foods, um, low-fat diet. Well, you know, we actually just, we spoke earlier in the show a Dr. Kevin Lung from the uh, Ikahi Ornish program. And part of that whole program is low-fat with the idea that, This whole food plant-based diet actually helps people to get off of medication, Um, specifically helps them to get off of medications that are treating blood pressure, cholesterol, and in a lot of cases, diabetes. Because if you're able to change and make that metabolic shift in your body, then this plant-based whole food kind of diet really does have an impact on your body beneficially. So you're absolutely correct. Some of those uh, dietary programs out there like Ornish, Mediterranean Diet, etc., people really can get, on, get off some of their medicines, be carefully monitored by their doctor, and have their medication doses reduced, if not eliminated. So that is definitely a possibility. Let me see if I understand the first part of your question, and then have Dr. Mark help us out. So you're wondering if a diet that's high in fat affects your body's ability to clear the blood of sugar with the natural production of insulin.
3: Yes. It, it, my understanding is that, especially with saturated fats, um, that it ha- has a coating effect on the visceral walls, and uh, the insulin is basically unable to pass through that barrier
4: um, well, you know, visceral fat, um, so, so a high fat diet, you know, it's getting a little bit more attention and I think, um, I think it deserves more research, although I, I think it's, we're, we're, it's a bit too early to say that that's a preferred diet in someone who, um, who has diabetes and is, you know, um, you know, needing to, needing to control their sugars better. now going on a high-fat diet sometimes might mean you know for that individual they're consuming less sugars and simple sugars and so that could have a result on blood sugars in that in that uh, fashion but increasing visceral fat is probably not a good thing uh, visceral fat um, as opposed to peripheral fat um, is is sort of more more highly associated with metabolic syndrome and a lot of the sort of you know mainstay uh cardiovascular risk factors that we think are um, you know uh, harmful for uh for for basically heart health and and stroke risk
0: so it sounds like jesse right. you're kind of getting down to the molecular part, which to me I find really curious and have to admit i I don't know exactly how it transpires but Eating a high-fat diet. So when you think about things like eating a high-fat, high-sugar diet, well, that doesn't sound like a good plan. Eating a high-fat, low-sugar, low-carbohydrate diet, there are some studies to suggest that that could reduce your body's need for for its own exogenous insulin, meaning you, you don't have to make as much if you're not eating a lot of sugar. But is a high-fat diet good for your body overall? And you know, I have to say, very interestingly enough, just before we came on air today, I was telling my guests that... I went to this real interesting conference in November, and the first, there were several speakers, and one of them was Dr. Mark Hyman, and he kind of said, listen, everybody's gone all freaky about eating fats, and maybe they're not that bad for you. And right after his talk came Dr. Dean Ornish, who's like... I don't know what that guy was talking about. I think you should eat low yeah. fat. I think this is totally against what he just said. But I think we both agree that people should eat a healthy diet in moderation. So it was a real interesting conference because, you know, one guy says, eat the fat, stop worrying about it. The next guy says, no. And luckily, it was a very nice collegial event. So although they had completely different opinions, they both were able to find some common ground and say, listen, you shouldn't eat too much of anything. You should be really careful with what you're eating, and you should monitor your metabolic parameters. That's about all those two guys would agree on. But it was a real interesting dichotomy of, of how people are looking at diet and how that really has an effect. They both agreed that eating too much sugar isn't good for you. Eating bad carbohydrates, meaning the kind that are super processed and the kind that always tastes so good, that's not good for you. But there are different camps of thought as far as eating, eating diets that are higher in fat and eating diets that are lower in fat, even the saturated, unsaturated components. So you can find people to argue either side of that spectrum, and the data can probably back either one of those great speakers up. They both wrote books that were wonderful and, and proved their point. But from the molecular standpoint, as far as does coating the walls of visceral fat cells lead to a problem, I honestly don't know that much of the molecular aspect of it but I'll tell you this much. If you have too much visceral fat, then the insulin that you have can't get in there. That's that insulin resistance situation where you just, no matter what you do, it doesn't matter because the insulin can't get into the cells anyway. So even if you produce a high level of insulin, like Dr. Bridenstine talked about earlier, you could still have high sugars because the insulin doesn't work. And so that's associated with the visceral fat as opposed to peripheral fat storage. Visceral being kind of in the center part of your abdomen and in the middle there amongst all the organs peripheral being like elsewhere arms and legs kind of stuff so you know that we know is a risk factor but the actual specifics of how does that high fat diet affect the insulin level that's a that's a discussion i would have to have with who would it be like a biochemist i would think or somebody who does like serious molecular biology kind of work. I've got some friends who do. I'll, I'll try and look it up um, and see if I can come up with an exact mechanism. But um, I got to tell you, it was real interesting to sit in that audience after those two speakers, one after the other. And uh, it, it was it was nice that it was a conference where everybody was, like, calm and collected because I couldn't imagine what would have happened otherwise. That was sort of a two dichotomous camps of thought on diet. And, uh, and they're both great scientific physicians that – have a lot of information to prove their points. And I kind of liked the high-fat idea because it sounded like it would taste better than uh, just eating plants all the time. But usually what I want (laughs) to eat is probably not what I should. So uh, I kind of felt like Dr. Ornish probably was the right path to eat all the plants and stuff, probably a little bit healthier in general.
3: I have a lot of uh, friends. I've eaten a a low-fat Raw vegan, mostly fruit-based diet for over ten years, and uh, a lot of people in that community have had incredible results with diabetes, um, reversing type two, and even lowering the need for insulin in type one diabetes. Um, So it's it's really interesting, and it's it's hard to um, avoid sugars because the body breaks everything down into simple sugars for fuel for the cells yeah
0: very true but again it's it's a matter of not all sugar is sugar so you know if you were to say yeah. i'm going to get my sugar from from a natural source like fruit versus i'm going to get my sugar from a candy bar the way your body metabolizes those two different types of foods is different internally And so not all calories are the same. And your natural source is definitely going to be better for your body than your processed source. And if you look at people even who have diabetes and what that intake of that sugar does to their blood sugar, it is different based on what they're eating so you know hey kudos to you for following a fruit-based diet for 10 years you're certainly helping helping to keep your body healthier and if you've been able to keep those other parameters cholesterol sugar uh, blood pressure etc nice and low you're going to live a long time there in haiku and uh good for you it's a gorgeous part of the maui well
3: thank you thanks for having me i appreciate it
0: all right. Thanks for uh, thanks for bringing up a really compelling question. How exactly does a high-fat diet affect insulin? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Mark Breidenstein. He's an endocrinology expert at Kaiser Permanente. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the newer treatments that are out there and how some injections, which are not insulin, actually can help your body with your sugars. We'll be right back after this quick break. If you've got a question, remember, you can always join us. Jessie had some really interesting thoughts back in Haiku. And we're at 941-3689. Toll Free Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. On the next Humankind...
3: This just feels really different to me. I feel empowered by the strengths of the moms and the grandmothers who are around me. A determined group called Mothers Out Front, band
2: together to combat climate change for the sake of their children's future. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace.
3: NPR's From the Top with host Christopher O'Reilly returns to Hawaii Island for a live taping on November 30th. HPR presents the show at the Luna Lilo Center on the Kamehameha School's Hawaii campus, featuring some of the school's students in an original Hawaiian language opera. See From the Top live in Keau before it airs nationally. Visit HawaiiPublicRadio.org for more. Supported in part by the Hawaii Youth Symphony.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Mark Bridenstine. He's an endocrinology expert at Kaiser Permanente. And today we're talking about diabetes. It's not just about sugars. It's about this whole process that goes on in your body that affects your eyes, your kidneys, your heart. I don't think there's any organ that doesn't get affected when you have this extra pressure of high sugar on the body. And lots of things can happen that we try and avoid, like negative health consequences, heart attacks, strokes, you name it, it can all be at an increased risk if you have this medical condition. Now, right before the break, we were talking with Jesse from Haiku, Interesting question. How does actually, how does a high-fat diet affect insulin levels? Because it kind of alludes to people who follow some of the low-carbohydrate diets, and does that help? And yes, there is is an element of low-carbohydrate that people should follow, but nobody should really go to the no-carbohydrate or no-fat. You know, lowering the amount in your diet is good. But even with cholesterol, even with saturated fats, your body needs a certain amount of these to function. So when we talk about excluding everything, probably not a good idea, but including certain elements that work for your personal body, that's the way that we've got to look at it, personalized nutrition. Now, we've got another caller on the line. We've got Bobby calling from Honolulu. Bobby, welcome to The Body Show.
2: Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for calling. What can we do for you?
2: Uh, I just had a question about, I guess, I guess, to the doctor because he's an endocrinologist. Um, is it possible for, I guess, a long-term nicotine user, for that to cause uh, elevated blood sugars?
0: What a great question, Bobby. So you're wondering for somebody who smoked a whole lot, could that cause their sugars to go up? Interesting, Doctor Mark.
4: Yeah, I think I think there's uh, there's some there's some evidence that um, nicotine can, at least temporarily, increase blood sugars. Whether the long-term um, use sort of can cause uh, diabetes that uh, that sticks around after you, after stopping nicotine, that that I don't think has been uh, been demonstrated. So, I think there's there's some evidence of just kind of short, um, you know, experimental a negative increase you know as a sort of a stimulant standpoint uh a lot of a lot of things can temporarily raise blood sugar but yeah long term um m- more difficult to say it's you especially when you're talking about type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance um it's it's usually not usually we don't find just one thing usually it's a combination of things family history someone's weight um you know other other medical conditions that sort of contribute to their um their diabetes.
0: Okay. All right, Bobby, that doesn't mean go be a long-time nicotine user, Uh, but at least it's probably not going to get you on the diabetes train if you can keep an eye out on, you know, what you're eating and doing your exercise and stuff.
2: Right, right. I I guess I I just had another, I guess, a follow-up question. Say you have, like, a pretty uh, in-shape, maybe, like, 30-year-old male, and... They've been using that for a long time no family history of diabetes is it, i mean if if their blood sugars fasting are really high is would you treat that any differently from say someone who is overweight
4: so um, so uh, how well it kind of depends I guess on how high and and, I, and it would usually um, I'd usually look for, you know, a, a formal diagnostic test either with an A1C or, or a, a, fa- a fasting blood sugar with, for, based off a serum level. So not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, make a decision to treat just based off a, of a finger stick. Um,
0: but, like, I think, Bobby, I understand your question. Would you treat a skinny diabetic differently than you would treat an overweight diabetic
2: yeah, sure. And That's, someone who's yeah. young too. Yeah. yeah,
0: like a young, skinny diabetic. Because I'll be honest, some of the scary A1Cs that I've seen mm-hmm. have been in young, skinny people. And like they're so excited that they're losing weight because, yay, I was a little overweight. And then I lost all this weight. I didn't even try. And then I checked their sugar. I'm like 500. And I start freaking out and I call the endocrinologist. So, you know, the, I call somebody like Dr. Mark and get all worried. So, yes, young, skinny diabetics tend to have a different metabolic problem than middle-aged overweight diabetics. And that's a very generalized statement. But in general, the young skinny diabetics tend to have a problem that requires more aggressive treatment. And I'll be honest, in my experience, Dr. Mark, these are the people that wind up on insulin because their sugars are really high. And I can't tell them to go on a diet and lose weight because they're already losing weight.
4: Yeah so yeah so that 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 would spark you know the the question Does does this person still make insulin or not because if you uh, and it, and it it still happens you know people um people get sort of diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and we find out you know months or sometimes years later well those oral therapies they didn't really work that well and cuz it was type 1 yeah and uh, so we we confirm that you know sometimes later on and um and but yeah if you're if you're thinking about these things at the time of uh when treatment is being Decided, then you can you can check and give someone a reasonable idea whether they still make insulin. You know, there, there's a lot of caveats though when it comes to that because, um, especially when someone comes in and they're very uncontrolled, so they have really really high a one cs very markedly elevated blood sugars. The pancreas is kind of the cells in the pancreas that that make insulin have been on overload for for a while and. Um, and so when we, when we test to determine whether they make insulin or not, we, we sometimes are, we get a falsely, uh, abnormal result, meaning the, the cells, they, they would make insulin, but they're, they're so burnt out. They're so sort of tired right now that, um, they, they need a break. They need, they need something to help them recover. And once that, once, you know, whether that's insulin, usually that's insulin. If, if we find that, uh, and, and the body starts, uh, seeing lower blood sugars, it, it, um that resistance over time. It's not something that happens immediately, but it will It will improve, and that's another time after it does improve and the body starts seeing more normal blood sugars, we can make a, another assessment at that time and say, hey, is this person, now, now that they've been given a little bit of support, are they able to make some of their own insulin? And that, that sometimes we're able to find that we can de-escalate therapy in that scenario.
0: So like, you know, your pancreas goes on a vacation,
4: yeah, yeah. Well. And
0: then after you go on vacation, sometimes you come back energized. Yep. And the vacation would be that your body stops making the insulin. Mm-hmm. So you get insulin. You do it injectable. Mm-hmm. We don't have – there is an inhaled version, never really took off. It's all injectable now. And so once you do that, maybe maybe the pancreas comes back from its vacation. It was sort of stunned for a little while. Right. And in some cases, it can actually function again and things can get better. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it doesn't. Only time will tell. Right. Right. Exactly, yeah. but we treat skinny diabetics different than overweight diabetics because we can't tell the skinny people lose more weight. Right, it's not uh-huh. going to work. Right, it's just it's already happened. Mm-hmm. They, no point in that. All right, so that was a great question, Bobby. Yeah. How do we treat our our skinny diabetics? And uh, no, we can't blame smoking, but don't do that because it's not a good plan. All right, we've got Emil on the line from the Big Island. Welcome to the Body Show, Emil.
2: Oh hi, how's it going? Aloha.
0: Aloha, Aloha. it's going great over here. What can we What can we do for you?
2: Oh, I was just listening to the show, and I thought this was worth a mention. It was kind of like what Jesse was saying about a raw food diet.
0: Okay. Uh, I
2: have a DVD, and it's about a doctor in Arizona uh, named Gabriel Cousins, and he would cure diabetes for patients in a month of raw foods. So I just thought it was worth a mention. I don't have the, the name of the DVD, and it's not with me because I'm not at home, but... I just thought it was worth a mention.
0: Well, it's an interesting thought. And you know what? I think for a lot of those folks who have the idea that they can dramatically alter someone's sugar by adjusting what they eat, we are seeing that if people can make adjustments, you can also te- technically, you can, and in a lot of cases, you can reduce your blood sugar, reduce your cholesterol, reduce your your all different parameters of of blood pressure all those sorts of things the key is can you keep it up right. and that's really where we were just talking during our little break the perfect diet everybody wants to know what it is there isn't one it's different for different people and at different phases of your life and also you got to do something that's realistic so if you can only eat raw foods for example for some people that is totally doable and they might grow their own vegetables, and they do fabulous at it. And for someone else, that's probably not something they could follow. Mm-hmm. Even if they had diabetes and wanted really hard to cure it, their lifestyle might just not allow that. So although there are great things to do when you have a diagnosis of diabetes, there's no one-size-fits-all because one size doesn't fit anybody.
4: Yeah, and I think I think you want to also make sure if you're going to go through the trouble of making such a dramatic change that you're – um you know you 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 plan to monitor it and you you know you get your your doctor to kind of help with uh with mo- you know certain ways to monitor the parameters of of the diet that you're going to you're going to try and and so you you find out for yourself whether that's going to work for you or not
0: sure you know i think back to with this lecture that i went to dr mark hyman talks about all these people who did great on his particular dietary program Next hour, Dr. Dean Ornish talks about all these people who did great on his particular dietary program. Both sets of people did great. Mm -hmm. They followed a diet that they were able to sustain and that worked great for their body. And that's really the key is that, you know, even, even with cousins one month of... You can cure diabetes. I wouldn't necessarily say cured. I kind of call it like recover from, mm-hmm. because once you have that susceptibility, you might have that susceptibility again if your diet reverses back the way that it was. Right. So we very cautiously say the word cure, because we worry that maybe that would set people up to think that absolutely, if you just follow this, everyone's fixed, and it's not the case for right. everybody. right. All right, we've got one time for one more caller. We have Kehalihi from Nana Coolie. Welcome to the Body Show.
2: Oh, uh, thank you for uh, taking my call. I was—I'm not sure if you covered this, but I had seen an article about artificial pancreas related to um, an external device that helps monitor uh, blood sugar and then can also, um, I guess, in the future, automatically. Uh, deliver whatever level or dosage of insulin required. I just want to know your thoughts about something like that and uh, what group of um, patients with diabetic diabetes that might be most appropriate for.
0: Great Even question all
2: the you just talked about, thank you
0: yeah, great question because I read the same article about the artificial pancreas. I think at some point science is going to get good enough that we could create something like that, and we 're getting close that you know they 've done they used to do pancreas transplants that kind of didn 't work as well as we had hoped then they were doing like insulin pumps and censoring your body, your body getting a sensor, and giving you the exact insulin that you need, but the latest and greatest is artificial pancreas. What do you know about it, Dr. Mark? Because I just know I read about it in like Time Magazine and yeah. that's my scientific expertise. So I'm sure you're better than that.
4: So it, it's, uh, I guess it's, yeah, it's it's sort of the holy grail of, uh, of diabetes treatment. And uh, the idea being that um, you have a, you know, you have a device that's, Either administering insulin alone, or in, in, in some argue a combination of insulin and, and glucagon, kind of a an anti-insulin hormone um, that uh, that will um, administer that and also respond to uh, blood sugars and the, uh, the the levels of blood sugars um, and basically make make adjustments um, to uh, uh, help keep blood sugars you know in a more more normal range and, and better than what we're able to achieve with injections alone. So, you know, it's an area that's, I'd say it's made a lot of progress um, in the last, you know, five years. Um, and there, you know, there's different uh, different companies coming out with different, um, different pumps. There was a recent um, insulin pump, a combination of an insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitor.
0: Kind of almost like an artificial pancreas.
4: Yeah, so you know, I, w- I would say it, I don't think it's quite there yet. That's that's the term that they try to they, they do use, but I it, there there's um, there's definitely some elements of this even the newer um, this newer pump and and um, continuous monitor that still require a fair amount of uh, sophistication with that individual with knowing how much insulin to give themselves. So for 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 this. This device in particular, it's a Medtronic, um, it's a Medtronic pump uh, in a in a sensor that is uh, it's not actually not out yet uh, commercially, but should be out next spring. And um, it's uh, has an algorithm that helps um, identify someone's basal insulin need, which is their background insulin, and um, and basically measure that and make adjustments to the amount of insulin that gets infused uh, on an hourly basis it's not not uh actually it doesn't account for meals uh so uh in order to adequately control blood sugar that's still going to be necessary and the person that's um, uh operating the pump is still going to need to have a fair, a fair amount of uh, sophistication with knowing what um what different how insulin acts how how quickly it acts and how food um uh, causes blood sugars to to, to rise and, and basically know know how their body responds to insulin. So it's it hasn't it's not really at a point yet where it's able to just take over completely um, and you know leave leave the person um, sort of free of thinking about it. Uh, but but it's it's heading there.
0: All right, great question, Kelly. Because that you know what it makes me really respect is our body's ability, the pancreas's ability to do this incredible sensing of our blood sugar and releasing of insulin automatically, that biologic process that's inside of all of us. I just respect it even more when we try and turn it into an artificial kind of a process and we realize how difficult it is. Well, we've had a real interesting show. We're going to have to have you on again, Dr. Mark. We didn't cover a whole bunch of stuff I wanted to, but we will next time. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Thanks to Dr. Mark Breidenstein, endocrinologist at Kaiser Permanente, our engineer David Chong, our executive producer Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kozak. We'll see you next week here on The Body Show.